Hey, out of necessity, the following episode was recorded before the election, but we still think it's very pertinent to the world that we live in right this very minute, and you should listen to it. But if you're curious why we're not making some obvious election-y applications, that's why. Yay, let's listen. Hey everybody, welcome. It's the sound of sanity, the simple sound of sanity. Forget about your worries and your strife. Yeah, man. It's the sound of sanity, the simple sound of sanity. Embrace your new socialistic life. Boo hiss. Yeah. (laughs) Boo hiss, yeah. It's a new, (laughs) it's a little teaser for what we're talking about. Folks, my name is Nathan. I'm your humble and obedient host. Welcome to Sound of Sanity. We're talking about communism and socialism in the next two episodes. This is communism month for us. It's great. We're all together. We're we're all together, yeah. Yeah. Uh, But let me introduce our comrades of the show. Of course, we have Comrade Solzer over there. Hi, Comrade Alberson. Hi, Comrade Solzer. (laughs) You know what? (laughs) As awesome as this bit is, (laughs) we'll just drop it right now. Uh, Yay! (laughs) That's a bad idea. (laughs) Let's let's introduce Jake, the pastor, who's not a comrade. I mean, he's our friend, but... He is, but he's he's not a comrade. Yeah. This is Jake Mensel. We're pretending we're murderous ideologues. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It wouldn't be the first time on (laughs) (laughs) Sunday. It wouldn't be the first time. No, not at all. Well, hi, Jake. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Who is Jake again? He's a pastor. He's a master of sanity. Yep. And you're associate producer of the show. Your name is Benjamin Solzer. My name is Nathan. I'm your humble and obedient host. Guys, we're talking about Marxism, communism, socialism, those things. We are talking about where Marxism comes from and what a thoughtful Christian should think about it, or even an unthoughtful one, really, just what you should think about it. Cool. That's what we're talking about. And I think this is going to be spread over the next two episodes of Sound of Sanity. So why would we want to be talking about Marxism, fellas? Because Marxist rhetoric is everywhere today. Because we are all Marxists now. We're all hmm. Marxists now, comrade. Hmm. Rhetoric is everywhere. Obviously, these, ep- these episodes, we're, help- we're recording them a little bit in advance, but they're dropping in November, election month. So people are talking about this kind of stuff, right? It's worth talking about. I'm a little annoyed that we have to talk about it because suddenly everybody woke up and thought, oh no, the Marxist revolutionaries are suddenly taking over America as if they haven't been taking over America for the past 70 years and we're all surprised by this. We're all lobsters and the heat has been slowly turned up. And then we're like, oh no, I'm going to be served for dinner. <laughs> oh no. It's like, you were in the pot. Yeah. There was water. It so was I've getting talked hotter, to, talked you to, dumb lobster. In the past couple of weeks, I've talked to people from two different churches who have had elders and pastors resign because, oh no, Marxism is in the church. We didn't see this coming and we need to react and stamp out this heresy. Or, oh, Marxism is in the church. Well, we need to be patient with people and help them understand things. and. Charles Spurgeon was fighting Marxism and socialism. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, which we'll talk about more later. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know. It's like, oh, have you had your kids in public school, you know, for the past 20 years and sent them off to a public university or a private one for that matter? And you're surprised by just now discovering 
what they've been taught. I think anybody who grew up in a conservative type situation like I did learned that communism was bad. Marxism was bad. It resulted in millions of deaths. And for that reason, because it seems so obviously and self-apparently bad, I think a lot of us, maybe not for that reason, but I think for various reasons, we just didn't take it that seriously because it's like, well, it's bad. And, you know, Reagan tore down that wall and mm-hmm. the Cold War is over and yeah. we got it. We won. We got them. We, we won and it's out there somewhere anyway. There's terrible stories of countries oppressed by communist regimes, but I have never seen that. So. Right. And sure, we all know the liberal, the, the left in America is pushing for things to be a little bit more socialistic or whatever, but... Oh, they really want health care and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And, and who's against free health care, for crying out loud? We got mm-hmm. yeah. sick grandma and you want her to suffer, Jake? Is that no, what you want? No, I don't want grandma to suffer. Well, there you go. Isn't that great? Jake doesn't want grandma to suffer. I'm glad that he's on board with uh, us. Yeah. <laughs> with the not... Don't let grandma suffer party. Well, I'll tell you. So he better be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he better be. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Uh, one thing I will say as someone who keeps abreast of the entertainment world and as someone who has a toe just because of the booking and stuff like that, keeping abreast of the academic world, it's like those people don't know that communism was defeated in the 20th century. Everybody in Hollywood still takes these ideas really seriously yeah. and thinks that they're great. And everybody in academia, well, takes these ideas. That's I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but basically that's true. Well, well yeah, I mean, and, and this is the thing. Okay, so like I was in campus ministry eight to 10 years ago and you saw all of this stuff that we see in the streets of America playing out now. We, we saw that playing out on campus 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and somebody listening can say, yeah, 10 years ago, ha, huh, how about 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? Right. But it's really never never changed. It just comes in waves and new generations take things up. And so literally 10 years ago, we're on campus and we've got, you know, disruptions and police are called and people are, uh, they call in like 30 police officers to shout because they're shouting us down. Somebody gets arrested all because we are saying that God created men and women different Mm -hmm. on campus. And you can go and you can listen to the clips and and hear the kinds of and w- watch clips of the kinds of things that happened when when we when we held that sort of event but that was just like that was normal and then what happened well you know all the christians were like you know really i think the problem was with you and your tone and your mm-hmm. rhetoric and your divisiveness and whatever 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 and so even then you know it was give up ground give up ground give up ground give up ground and let the whiny crybabies come and take it by crying at you. Well, I think a lot of us assumed, not everybody, but I think a lot of people, whether they articulated it or not, said, okay, they won with higher education. They got it. But what what, what ramifications will that have outside of the university? <laughs> That's not going to have a ripple effect on society at large. <laughs> it's not going to have a downstream <laughs> consequence. <laughs> yeah, right? None of us have to stand down, downwind of that. But And eventually, you know, everybody settles in and gets married and has jobs and then they become more conservative anyway yeah you go and you protest everybody's a little radical in college yeah you're 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 late teens you're early 20s you go throw a brick through a window it's like a cute thing you do you have sex you throw a brick through a window you go you go to a few protests you go to a few candlelight vigils then you grow up get a job and become a responsible citizen have kids and become a republican right yeah (laughs) in in, in the end these abstractions about communism don't have any consequences they don't have a they don't have a grip on Mm -hmm. the real world yeah They've never had a grip anywhere else in the world. Why yeah. should they have one here? Yeah. 
Well, as somebody said, maybe it was Jake Menzel, I think might have said this in private conversation to me. It's American exceptionalism at its finest. Exactly right. Communism has been tried everywhere else and found wanting. Well, it hasn't been tried. It, you know, it's that's not true communism. The world is waiting for America to do it right. That's the left. And then on the right, it's we're exceptional because it doesn't threaten us, actually. It's not going to happen. Yeah. We're just we can lose great. the universities. We can lose our entertainment. Like they can win Hollywood. They can win higher education absolutely every tool for catechizing and indoctrinating the children of this country for the past 100 years in their grasp but it won't matter right uh-huh mm-hmm mm-hmm well sounds like this might be a really short episode yeah <laughs> day one <laughs> no 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 guys i think what i'd like to do because eventually i wouldn't be surprised if the DAA goes off today i know it, it doesn't go always go off in every episode but I don't know. It's hmm. actually been broken. And you sent out to the repair guys, right, Ben? I, well, I, I that's what I told you, but I, I didn't tell you that I, I kind of am the repair guy. We don't have the budget for, yeah, anyway, I'm the repair guy, Nathan, and I'm working on it, okay? It probably works. I okay. mean, I'm not an electrician by training, you know? I'm an actor, and uh, an so actor. I, <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't promise anything. Well, I will not give you any goods in exchange for your lack of services, then. Uh, it's okay. All everything is uh, held in common here at Warren. That's what we say. Somehow, I you know I don't get the Burger King that you guys get, but that's okay. I'm sure it, it'll it'll even out in the end. So how about you didn't get the Burger King that we got? <laughs> lucky you, lucky, lucky duck. You. <laughs> <laughs> You're on the top of this particular heap, my friend. <laughs> All right. Oh boy. Well, folks, let's talk about Marxism. In fact, let's give a history of Marxism and the ideas of Karl Marx in a little segment I call, you know, actually, we haven't had this segment in a while. Not, no. not Maybe not in like a year or more. As opposed to all our other segments, which we have all the time. All the time. Yeah, no. But this is actually a segment that we've done before quite a, a few times, but not for a while. Monsters in the Attic. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Monsters in the Attic. Today, we're going to be talking about a certain monster named Karl Marx and the ideology named after him. Uh, Carlism? <laughs> oh, Ben, you are a card. No, the ideology called Marxism. Which, as it turns out, happens to have quite a bit of influence in America today, you might say. Hey, why don't we open with a short quotation from a high school textbook? That's fun, right? I think this sums it up as well as it possibly could be summed up. This is from a random high school textbook called Understanding the Times. Quote, very simply, Marxism is the philosophy of Karl Marx. A Marxist is someone who embraces this philosophy. Unquote. So Marxism is a catch-all term, theory of economics, but as we'll see, it's also a complete worldview. Yeah, and like all worldviews, it's asking and trying to answer some of the most fundamental questions, like, what's real? And Marx's answer to that was, only stuff is real, material stuff. There's no God, there's nothing spiritual, only the physical world, so materialism. That is really important, and not something that modern cultural Marxists will necessarily lead with, although it's very much implicit in everything that they do. Uh, Marx thought of all history through the lens of materialism. And specifically, he had a uh, Marxian brand of materialism, which was called dialectical materialism. Which is just his way of saying physical things have a way of duking it out. That word dialectical refers to the process of one thing opposing another. So dialectical materialism 
is actually a way of looking at history. It means that when you look at human history, any human society, all you see is one group of people fighting with another group of people. It's a conflict of opposites, and of course it's for the sake of physical stuff, like wealth. Yep, nothing spiritual going on here, but something is going on here, and that something is history, moving towards a goal, an end, it's an evolution, it's evolving. And it's evolving blindly and automatically driven by natural processes, just like in Darwinian evolution, no god required. Yeah, just like the end goal of evolution was man, according to Darwin anyway, the end goal of history is actually utopia, all thanks to dialectical materialism. Say, those are some pretty bold, broad claims about the meaning of all existence. Did Marx have, like, evidence? Well, if you've already decided to look at existence that way, you can see evidence everywhere. You can go through history. But and... but sh- shouldn't you start with the evidence, right? And then see Let's where... Let's move it... on! <laughs> okay, for some reason, the goal of history is... Utopia. All mankind united in a perfect brotherhood, and there's no more war or hunger. And We're all ascending. We own everything in common. But let's step back for a minute. We said that as history evolves towards this goal of utopia, it consists of groups of people fighting each other. So that begs the obvious question. Who are these groups of people, and what is this fight? Well, okay, so this is key to Marxism. These groups are different classes of people, basically the haves and the have-nots. The haves are the owners, the rich, and therefore the oppressors. Marx called them the bourgeoisie. But the have-nots are the workers, the poor, the oppressed. Marx called them the proletariat. And this struggle between the haves and the have-nots, between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, explains all of history. Every human society is explained by that. Right. In Marx's mind, if you just thought of the world in terms of class conflict, You're thinking about it accurately if you boil it all down to just that. Nothing more complex than class conflict. Class conflict is everywhere. It's everything. It's the most basic struggle of any man. Yeah, what Marx wanted was to awaken the proletariat, you know, the class of have-nots, the poor, the oppressed, to the fact of their oppression. He wanted them to be woke. Yeah, and, and getting woke in this case means that you start to feel the pain of the oppression you're under. Then you can start to fight back and cast off the yoke of the oppressors and foment violent revolution. But if you want to feel the pain, if you want to get woke, you have to get rid of anything that dulls the pain, which means, among other things, religion's got to go. I've heard Marx's famous quote, religion is the opiate of the people. Yeah, that's Marx, and that's why. And by the way, Christianity especially has to go because it's really good opium. So goodbye Christianity, goodbye all other religions while we're at it, goodbye capitalism, goodbye democracy slash constitutional republic. Wait wait a minute, why are we saying goodbye to all those things? Well, Ben, because capitalism is a way of keeping the middle class and the upper class, the bourgeoisie, in power. Get woke, bro! So to Marx, capitalism and all private property, just ways of keeping other people down. By the way, in preparation for this podcast, we've all read the Communist Manifesto, and as I was alluding to earlier... It's interesting that Marx doesn't so much argue his position about class warfare as he does just assert it. I mean, yeah, I guess to be fair, it is a manifesto, but man, he just repeats the same things over and over because it turns out that if you want to base your life on the idea that the only thing going on in the world is a war between oppressor and oppressed, you can train yourself to see the whole world that way. And I'm just going to cut to the chase and say Marxism feeds on our selfishness and ingratitude. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. I mean, it really is less of a position that you get to by argument than like a a pair of, oh, here's a metaphor that no one's ever used before, a pair of evil glasses you put on that sort of stick to your face and blind you. Wow, that was an awesome analogy, Nathan. (laughs) I know, Ben. Hey, we left out some important words while we were defining Marxism. Words like socialism and communism. We should talk about those. I think a lot of people kind of just assume they're all, all the same thing. 
Right. So socialism first. That's like the first major political step to get to communism. Marx defined it as the abolition of private property. It also includes a lot of taxes, yay, and government controlling businesses and that sort of thing. Wait, but you said the abolition of private property. So if individuals don't own things anymore, who does? Well, nobody does, but actually the government does. But it's important to understand at the end of the day for Marx, the government no longer exists either. Because Marx wants the government to be nothing more than a tool in the hands of the have-nots, the proletariat. He wants them to use the government to destroy all the things that keep the haves in power. Right. So they use the government, destroy all the things that keep the haves in power. Then, when the haves don't have any power or property or religion or anything at all, well, then you actually don't have any haves anymore. And you don't have any have-nots either. There's only one thing you have, which is a mass of humanity, and they have everything in common, and that's communism. So communism is like the perfect economic system. It's like it is utopia in the end. And in a perfect economic system, there's obviously no need for government anymore at all. Everyone's totally equal, so the government and its crummy hierarchies just sort of naturally disappear and fade away. Yeah, naturally, insofar as violent death promoted by Marx is natural. Well, it was natural for Marx. Well, all I have to say is that at least in a communist society, I'd still have my wife and kids. (laughs) No, you wouldn't, Nathan. Ben, why ever not? Because Marxism is anti-family too. Because, uh, think about it, why should you have your own wife? Doesn't that make you a have instead of a have not? Look, I mean, unacceptable. If all men have everything in common, then... Ben, uh, well, that uh, seems like a really gross and debauched state of affairs. And I don't intend to stand for it. Nathan, that's what violent revolution is for. It's to deal with stubborn bourgeois men like you. That sounds kind of also like Marx doesn't like anything in Western civilization. Let's see, the family, Christianity, democracy, capitalism, private property. Western civilization is the enemy, Nathan. Get woke. Yeah, Marx wasn't shy about opposing Western civilization, and his followers haven't been either. Take, for instance, the Black Lives Matter movement. But they do. Wait, who said they didn't? Oh, I I thought you were going to say something critical about Black Lives Matter. I am. But Black Lives do matter, Jake. Who said they didn't? Now, as far as the organization itself goes, here's what they say they want. And this is a direct quote. Quote, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families in villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. End quote. We should say in between the time that, not like we work from a script on these things, but if we did, hypothetically... In between the time that we wrote that script and in between the time that we're recording this, they have actually removed that part of their website somehow. It just wasn't very popular. I don't know. But the point is, Black Lives Matter, explicitly, until a couple days as of this recording, have an alternative idea of the family. Forget mom and dad. It takes, as our good friend Hillary Clinton said. It's just an alternative church in the end. That's all. It's an alternative for the family of God. You also notice there's a mention of mothers and parents in what we just quoted, but there's no mention of dads. Well, they do say they want to break down, quote, environments in which men are centered, end quote. But in other words, they're openly anti-father. They're openly anti-patriarchal, and they're violent about it. They've truly got the spirit of Marx. Speaking of which, hey, that's a great way to destroy Christianity. Take away fathers, take away the nuclear family. And that's what the Marxists figured out. Well, guys, actually, I think the best way to illustrate this stuff further would be to take a brief historical tour of Marxism in a segment I like to call A Brief Historical Tour of Marxism. Hey, everybody, welcome to A Brief Historical Tour of Marxism, a sub-segment of Monsters in the Attic. 
I'm your host, Nathan. With me today are Ben and Jake. How you doing, fellas? Uh, good, good. Great. Same as I was a minute ago. Jake, why don't you get us started? Right. So before we get all biographical and stuff, let's remember that Marx promoted violent revolution as a means of moving history forward catalyzing it towards its utopian end. Yeah, here I thought, you know, again, history was going to get there on its own, like evolution. Consistency is the hobgoblin of anti-Marxists, Ben. Duly noted, Nathan. Besides, to be fair to Marx, which I guess we have to be, he thought of the violent revolution of the proletariat as a natural occurring process of history, like a survival of the fittest dynamic within the human race at large. Well, sounds like a bloody mess. Uh, It was, and it is. Let's go through some numbers about how many people have been killed by Marxism, or by Marxists, to be more accurate. First one's the biggest, 65 million in China. 20 million in the USSR. 2 million in North Korea. 2 million in Cambodia. 1.7 million in Africa. 1.5 million in Afghanistan. 1 million in Vietnam. 1 million in Eastern Europe. 150,000 in Latin America. Man, these Marxists do whatever it takes, huh? They do, and that's over 94 million people dead, by the way. And with that in mind, we're ready to actually talk about Karl Marx the man for a minute. Whose life is actually not that violent, because Marx himself did not fight directly in any violent revolutions. Except a violent revolution of ideas, which is the worst kind, but we digress. So, Karl Heinrich Marx was born on May 5th, 1818 in Prussia, the third of nine children. He was an ethnic Jew, but not a religious Jew. Uh, Both of his grandfathers, though, were rabbis. His father, Heinrich, had converted from Judaism to liberal Lutheranism. Emphasis on the liberal here. Heinrich was not an actual Christian. No, he was a sophisticated man of the Enlightenment, and his son Karl would be a devoted atheist. In addition to being a religious liberal, Heinrich was a classical liberal in political terms. Which may be confusing since classical liberals include John Locke and Adam Smith, guys who are big fans of free markets. Yeah, uh, being a classical political liberal the way we usually think of it is kind of like being a capitalist. That's exactly right, and it didn't make you popular with the Prussian government, which was an absolute monarchy. But as revolutionary as Heinrich Marx might have seemed to some of his neighbors with his contrary political views, wasn't nearly as revolutionary as his son Karl. Yep, and it's the age-old story. He never did approve of his son's political views. Heinrich was an attorney, and he sent Karl to the university to be trained as an attorney. Instead, Karl was interested in hanging out with other radicals, writing novels and plays and stuff. Hey, he wrote a novel called Scorpion and Felix. I bet the bookening would love to read it. Right, Nathan and Jake? That's right, Ben. As soon as people give us a lot more money. As in a lot more money. Capitalism <laughs> at its finest, Jake. Nathan and Jake old chums, you're such greedy capitalists. Uh, oppress any members of the proletariat lately? Ben, old chum, that goes without saying. Boy, does it ever. Anyway, Karl Marx liked to hang out with the other radical students and philosophize. He talked and he wrote and he talked and he wrote and he talked and he wrote and he only worked a job insofar as being a journalist and an editor for a radical newspaper is kind of considered working by uh, some. Jake, I mean, isn't it? Like, a job is a job, and writing is hard work. So, sounds to me like Karl Marx was a hard-working man. Now, why don't we read a quote from this letter that Heinrich wrote to his son in 1837, just before he died in 1838. At the time, Karl was still a student in Berlin, but I do think it gives you a picture of what sort of working man Karl Marx really was. Heinrich wrote, quote, Alas, your conduct has consisted merely in disorder, meandering in all the fields of knowledge, musty traditions by somber lamplight. Degeneration in a learned dressing gown with uncombed hair has replaced degeneration with a beer glass. And a shirking unsociability and a refusal of all conventions and even all respect for your father. Your intercourse with the world is limited to your sordid room. 
We're perhaps lie abandoned in the classical disorder, the love letters of a Jenny, and the tear-stained counsels of your father. Wait, who's Jenny? Jenny was Marx's fiancée and then wife, but she had to wait seven years for him to marry her. Yeah, I'll just keep reading. Quote, And do you think that here in this workshop of senseless and aimless learning, you can ripen the fruits to bring you and your loved one happiness? As though we were made of gold, my gentleman's son disposes of almost 700 thalers in a single year, in contravention of every agreement and every usage, whereas the richest spend no more than 500. But Jake, it can't be. That letter makes it sound like Karl Marx enjoyed excessive wealth and lived a life of... Rich dissipation. Uh, also, didn't you just say that Marx got married? I mean, I thought he didn't believe in the nuclear family. Don't worry, Ben. I'm sure that he was able to keep some of his ideals by keeping his marriage childless and giving all his children away to be raised by a village or something like that. Uh, I'm sure you're right, Nathan. And I'm sure that after he read this letter, he gave all his money away to the proletariat and ate rice and beans. Right, Jake? Uh... Right, Jake? Marx wasn't a hypocrite, was he? Right, right Jake? Jake? Sorry, guys, but, you know, Marx apparently had a romantic and, dare I say bourgeois relationship with his wife and had several daughters with her and it seems like he actually loved them. Jake, you're shattering my illusions into tiny pieces. I mean, what about the abolition of the nuclear family? Yeah, Jake, you're like treading on my dreams, bro. Well, time to get woke, bro, but about the money question. Yeah, he gave all his money away and ate rice and beans, right? Rice and beans! More like bread and potatoes, but why don't we get to that when we get to it? Okay, back to the story of Karl Marx. Like we said, he was a student in Berlin in the 1830s. In 1838, his dad died. In 1841, he got his doctorate in philosophy. In 1842, he moved back to Prussia and started journalizing. The next year, he moved to Paris to become the editor of a radical leftist newspaper, and that's where he met Friedrich Engels. Marx and Engels would be lifelong friends and together work on a bunch of things, like most famously the Communist Manifesto. Which they published in 1848, the same year that Marx contributed emotional support and allegedly money to a number of protests and revolutions and would-be revolutions across Europe. The Revolutions of 1848. Hey, Wikipedia can be helpful sometimes. Let's read some Wikipedia just to give our listeners the gist. Quote, the revolutions of 1848, known in some countries as the springtime of the peoples or the spring of nations, were a series of political upheavals throughout Europe in 1848. It remains the most widespread revolutionary wave in European history. Continuing, the uprisings were led by temporary coalitions of reformers, the middle classes, the bourgeoisie, and workers. However, the coalition did not hold together for long. Many of the revolutions were quickly suppressed. Tens of thousands of people were killed and many more were forced into exile. And still continuing, significant lasting reforms included the abolition of serfdom in Austria and Hungary, the end of absolute monarchy in Denmark, and the introduction of representative democracy in the Netherlands. The revolutions were most important in France, the Netherlands, Italy, the Austrian Empire, and the states of the German Confederation that would make up the German Empire in the late 19th and early 20th century, unquote man. Yeah, we don't have time to go into depth today, but if you know your French history, you'll know that their version of the revolution eventually led to the ascension of Napoleon III. Not to be confused with Napoleon I, but uh, still... Not exactly a communist leader. No, closer to fascist. But in any case, this was as close as Marx ever got to direct participation in violent revolution. Hey, it must have been exciting for him to see the proletariat rising up like that. I bet it was, Ben. But none of these revolutions or rebellions or protests came anywhere near to producing a communist state. I mean, heck, none of them even produced a quasi-socialist state. No, but Marx figured that would happen eventually and inevitably, and he was wrong, as it happens. But we digress. We're almost done with our story. So... 
Back to Marx, in 1850, he moved to London. He would live there until his death in 1883, and that's where he would write the massive manuscripts for his magnum opus, which was published after his death, Das Kapital. Hey, fun fact, the other big name in London during Marx's time there, as we alluded to earlier, was Charles Spurgeon. There's no evidence that they ever met, but... But Spurgeon knew who Marx was, knew what he stood for, and definitely preached against socialism by name on a number of occasions. In fact, here's a quote from Spurgeon from a Spurgeon sermon preached in 1878. German rationalism, which has ripened into socialism, may yet pollute the mass of mankind and lead them to overturn the foundations of society. Then, advanced principles, so-called, will hold carnival, and free thought, uh, by which Spurgeon means atheism, will riot with the vice and blood, which were years ago the insignia of the age of reason. Yeah, Spurgeon knew what he was dealing with. And boy, was he right about the riot of blood. No kidding. But let's come back to the money question now. It's fair to say that Marx didn't live in luxury all his life. The Encyclopedia Britannica puts it well. Quote, from 1850 to 1864, Marx lived in material misery and spiritual pain. End quote. So 1850 was also the year Marx moved to London. And and then it was the year he was evicted. So between the hounding of creditors, the deaths of several children, his wife's nervous breakdowns, He was, indeed, miserable. Yeah, he even called the death of his son Guido, quote, a sacrifice to bourgeois misery, unquote. But, you know, it didn't help things that Marx refused to get a job that could actually provide for his family. Because as it turns out, his writing and his activism actually didn't provide for them. Neither did the one paying job he actually had in this period as the European correspondent for the New York Tribune. And he didn't have wealthy donors at this point to help him out either. His main support was his friend Friedrich Ingalls, who had a job in his father's sewing thread business. As Ingalls came up in the company, he made more and more money and was able to send more and more of it to Marx. Ingalls served capitalism, so capitalism could serve Marx. Thanks, capitalism. Look, not to to make light of Marx's misery or the death of his children or having to stay alive on not enough bread and potatoes. There are a lot of families in awful misery in London at the time because of the very kinds of things that Marx railed against. Low wages, terrible working conditions, terrible living conditions. All true. But let's go out on a limb here and say that Marx could have gotten a decent job or at least, you know, a job with his education and his connections. He could have provided for his family. He didn't have to put them through what he put them through. And that is in itself evil. He was a martyr to his cause, huh? Yeah, right. Something like that. Marx died in 1883, but Marxism lived on. We'll skip over a lot of Marxist history and just skim the surface from here on out. So before World War I, like we said, Marxists believed, following Marx, that if war broke out in Europe, the working classes would rise up against the property owners and create a communist revolution. They'd just do it on their own. Like, they would know that it was the right time. They thought it was inevitable this would happen. But they were proved wrong when the working class didn't simply rise up when World War I broke out in 1914, less than 30 years after Marx's death. Instead, the proletariat put on their uniforms and went dutifully off to war. Which was a big disappointment to the Marxists. So they decided Western democracy, capitalism, had captured the minds of the workers, and so until democracy and capitalism were destroyed, the communist revolution just couldn't happen. Marxist philosophers like Antonio Gramsci and Georg Lukács articulated these ideas. And Lukács, who became the Minister of Culture in Communist Hungary in 1919, got to put some of them into action. He focused his attack on the family, particularly through attacking Christian sexual ethics in children's education in Hungary. He called his program, quote, cultural terrorism, end quote. Its goal was, quote, the annihilation of the old values and the creation of new ones by the revolutionaries, end quote. 
Luke Cox only had a couple of months as Minister of Culture, but he, he put the time to good use. He threw out Catholic religious education on sex. He replaced it with secular sex education. He was trying to get the children to think of sex as something they could do for pleasure rather than simply for reproduction. He wanted them to throw off monogamy and organized religion and embrace Marxist values like free love. So after communism failed in Hungary, where it would later succeed, Lukács was kicked out, but continued to write Marxist philosophy. His ideas were very influential with the group of Marxists in Frankfurt, Germany, who were trying to figure out how to undermine and destroy Western society and make way for the global communist utopia. Not only were his ideas influential, so was his, like, religious faith that Marxism was right and would win. Ben, I thought these Marxists didn't have religious faith. But Lukács treated his Marxism as his religious faith. He said, quote, even if recent research had disproved decisively and once and for all every one of Marx's substantive claims, then the intellectual standing of Marxism would remain intact, end quote. Wow. Down with truth. Up with Marxism. Nathan, don't give the Marxists free slogans. Sorry, Ben. So anyway, back to that group of Marxists in Frankfurt, Germany. Right. These guys formed the Institute for Social Research, but would later come to be known simply as the Frankfurt School. This is important. The Marxist theory that the Frankfurt School came up with is what we now call cultural Marxism, because they were interested in the ways that Marxism could triumph by claiming culture from the inside out. You know, the outside-in method of telling the proletariat to kill everybody and take over the world didn't work for some reason. So, all right, guys, how else can we win this? So they decided they could win by questioning and criticizing every pillar of Western culture. Family, democracy, common law, freedom of speech, etc., etc., etc. The hope was that these pillars could crumble under the pressure, and attacking those pillars was the focus of the book Critical Theory, first of many from these new Marxists. Their next book was called The Authoritarian Personality. It redefined traditional American views on gender roles and sexual mores as prejudice. They compared these views to the traditions that led to the rise of fascism in Europe. Mm -hmm. And just like traditional Marxism, the core goal of all their work was to split society into two main groups, the oppressors and the oppressed, the persecutor and the victim, the dominator and the dominated. They argued that the social roles of men and women were due to gender differences defined by the oppressors. In other words, gender did not exist in reality, but was merely a social construct that allowed men to oppress women. Wait, can we just have a little time out here because there's a contradiction there isn't there yeah so originally these guys were darwinian evolutionists which if you looked at you know evolution you might say seems like men and women have evolved to be different and to complement one another and we see this across species outside of just humanity males are dominant females are not dialectical but, materialism at work right or whatever right exactly dialectical materialism at work but no now we have to redefine things as a social construct because like Lukács said this is now a religion that transcends truth yeah these guys were all about transcending truth <laughs> their religion so in 1955 another member of the same group frankfurt school a guy named herbert marcuse wrote eros in civilization and he argued that western culture was inherently repressive because it gave up happiness for social progress so instead of that, Marcuse praised, quote, polymorphous perversity, unquote, and he called for a sexual revolution. Well, this is all starting to sound very familiar, but let's just keep the thread here. Big picture, ultimately, the scholars, quote unquote, of the Frankfurt School determined that they needed a new vehicle for advancing Marxism. They actually relegated Marx's original idea of property owners versus workers. Yeah, and instead they substituted blacks, women, homosexuals, 
as victims of their oppressors, white, male, heterosexuals, who had dominated Western culture to this point. Yeah, that definitely sounds familiar and kind of brings us back full circle to the purpose statement of BLM, which is to tear down, you know, the white, male, heterosexual complex. So ever since the Frankfurt School, this new Marxism, which we call cultural Marxism, has tried to destroy the foundations of Western culture in the ways we've been describing. Right. And they've succeeded in a lot of ways. Not with the revolution of guns, tanks, Molotov, cocktails, all that stuff, but with a sexual, anti-family, anti-Christian revolution. Here's a quote from Antonio Gramsci, one of the founding fathers of the Frankfurt School. Quote, The civilized world has been thoroughly saturated with Christianity for 2,000 years. Any country grounded in Judeo-Christian values cannot be overthrown until those roots are cut. But to cut the roots, to change culture, a long march through the institutions is necessary. Only then will power fall into our laps like a ripened fruit. End quote. Yeah, so just to repeat ourselves again, what institutions is Gramsci talking about? Well, the family, the university, the arts, the media, the church. And the Marxists have been marching through them pretty steadily. Okay, I think we're almost done here, guys. But just as throw things on with a completely iron thread, let's talk for a minute about Kate Millett. Basically, the mother of radical feminism. Kate Millett was an author and activist mainly in the 1960s and 70s, and she had a sister named Mallory Millett who would later write exposés of Kate's activism. In one of those exposés, Mallory describes a 1969 gathering she attended, and I think we should just read this, even though it's long. Let me start. Quote, It was 1969. Kate invited me to join her for a gathering at the home of her friend, Lila Karp. They called the assemblage a consciousness-raising group. Typical communist exercise something practiced in Maoist China. We gathered at a large table as the chairperson opened the meeting with a back-and-forth recitation like a litany, a type of prayer. But now, it was Marxism, the church of the left, mimicking religious practice. Why are we here today? she asked. To make revolution, they answered. What kind of revolution? she replied. The cultural revolution, they chanted. And how do we make cultural revolution? she demanded. By destroying the American family they answered. How do we destroy the family, she came back. By destroying the American patriarch, they cried exuberantly. And how do we destroy the American patriarch, she replied, by taking away his power. How do we do that? By destroying monogamy, they shouted. How can we destroy monogamy? Their answer left me dumbstruck, breathless, disbelieving my ears. Was I on planet Earth? Who were these people? By promoting promiscuity, eroticism, prostitution, and homosexuality, they resounded. They proceeded with a long discussion on how to advance these goals by establishing the National Organization of Women. It was clear they desired nothing less than the utter deconstruction of Western society. The upshot was that the only way to do this was to, quote, invade every American institution. Everyone must be permeated with the revolution, unquote. The media, the educational system, universities, high schools, K-12, school boards, etc. Then, the judiciary, the legislatures, the executive branches, and even the library system. It fell on my ears as a ludicrous scheme, as if they were a band of highly imaginative children planning a Brinks robbery. A lark trumped up on a snowy night amongst a group of spoiled brats over brews and hashish. To me, this sounded silly. End quote. And that concludes our new favorite segment, In Monsters in the Attic, a brief historical tour of Marxism. What a ride! Jake, your thoughts about Marxism and cultural Marxism? Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. 
them. Imagine all the people living for today. Look at that, guys. There's a tear in my eye. Is it allergy season? Yep, it's allergy season, Ben. What a him. All right, guys. Well, that's obviously a bunch of crap, right? Yep. Yep. Total crap. All right. Well, I guess we don't have to do a second. Oh, my stars. I guess I repaired it well enough. Yeah. But what have I done? I don't know. I should use my capitalist power to fire you, maybe. Because <laughs> Please. <laughs> <laughs> you got to rise up, Ben. Yeah. When you're living on your knees, you got to rise up, man. Boy, it's the devil's advocacy alarm. Tell you on the streets. You got to rise up. All right, guys. Let's. Well, uh, the devil's advocacy alarm. It's an alarm that goes off where someone has to play the devil's advocate and argue for the opposite position that we've been arguing. Now, what argument have we been making here? Uh, I think we've just been reporting historical facts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, What argument do those facts seem to make, Jake? With with no bias. (laughs) (laughs) That Marxism and cultural Marxism is, has a long history of being completely and utterly morally and spiritually corrupt and bankrupt and destructive to all of society, including American society. Well, I'm not going to... How's that? I'm not, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That does sum it up. And you know, I'm. I mean, I'm not gonna. I don't. I don't know why any one of us would want to fight against that. I'm certainly not, Ben. <laughs> no. Well, I think we should ask Jake if he wants to fight against that. I assume the answer is no. No, I'm gonna do it. Oh, I pressed the button. Oh man, Jake, you pressed the button. I pressed the button. Except, I think we need to rename the devil's advocacy alarm because I don't think I'm gonna be on the side of the devil. What do you want to name it? I'm on the side of the angels with this one, man. The the AAA? <laughs> the Angels Advocacy the AAA? That's right. <laughs> AAA. Call AAA when you've got trouble. All right, Jake. Well, man. you're calling AAA, huh? Yep. Because obviously, communism, Marxism, biblical. What? what? Sound of Sanity will be continued next episode, obviously. And <laughs> <laughs> hey, we want to thank Pastor Stephen Baker for providing some research for us. And I want you to go to patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity to support this show. We do live in a capitalist society and we need some of your money because the government's not funding this show and neither are the people as far as I'm. Well, the people are, but the people have to choose to do that. Anyway, listeners like you. Listeners like you. The show was produced by me, executive produced by Jake and me, associate produced by Ben. Until next time, comrades. Stay sane. <laughs>